1: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 390th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a comedy writer, actress, and showrunner who was Saturday Night Live's first ever female head writer and second female weekend update anchor before achieving tremendous success with TV series such as 30 Rock and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, films like Baby Mama and Sisters, and even a Broadway musical version of her earlier film, Mean Girls. She has been described by Rolling Stone as the third most important cast member in the history of SNL, behind only John Belushi and Eddie Murphy, by The Guardian as the most influential female comedian working today and the funniest comic of the 21st century, and by Entertainment Weekly as the funniest woman in the free world. The author of the best-selling 2011 memoir, Bossy Pants, she has been named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World multiple times. She has won nine Emmys, three Golden Globes, five SAG Awards, seven Writers Guild Awards, and three Producers Guild Awards. She has been nominated for a Grammy and a Tony. She was the 2018 recipient with her frequent collaborator, Robert Carlock, of the Writers Guild's Herb Sargent Award for Comedy Excellence. And in 2010, she became the youngest ever recipient of the highest honor in the world of comedy, the Kennedy Center's Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. I'm talking, of course, about Tina Fey. Over the course of our conversation, the 51-year-old and I discussed the roots of her interest in comedy, writing, and performing, her experience at SNL, from co-anchoring Weekend Update with Jimmy Fallon and then Amy Poehler, to later cameoing as Sarah Palin, what it's like making series TV, from her early experiences with 30 Rock, through the shows on which she is currently serving as an executive producer, NBC's Mr. Mayor and Peacock's breakout hit Girls 5 Eva, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Tina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you. And on this podcast, we always begin right at the very beginning. Just a, a couple of basics, if you don't mind. Where were you born and raised, and uh, and what did your folks do for a living?
0: I was born in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. And uh, my mother was a stay-at-home mom for most of my Uh, childhood. Mm -hmm. And my dad was uh, a bunch of things, but mostly when I was a kid, he was um, a grant writer uh, for University of Pennsylvania and for a place called Thomas Jefferson University.
1: Cool. And now I know you've probably gotten a million variations of this one, but were you a funny kid? I had heard the earliest thing I could find was that you were writing a humor column for the high school newspaper. But was that the beginning or was it even earlier?
0: Yeah, I think I did write a, I did write a humor column called the Colonel that that's still hopefully still going on. It was passed down uh, from generation to generation at that school. I think I somewhere around middle school decided I wanted to be funny. I think you, you want to be funny and you self identify as wanting to be funny for a long time before you actually are funny. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and was, uh, you know, I, one of the things just in prepping for this, I had seen you were you were saying it was sort of just a way to, I guess, probably for most people, you know, they come up with some way to ingratiate themselves with uh, their peers It can either be athletics or whatever for you it was just that.
0: For sure. It was, you know, as a as a it was a coping mechanism uh, as a girl, a girl who wasn't growing up the prettiest girl in the world. It was a way of kind of getting ahead of that and being like, you're not gonna make fun of me. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna make fun of me. And maybe also you.
1: Well, I was gonna say, what is there? I can't believe this is true. But apparently you have copped to the fact that for at least a brief period, you yourself were a mean girl.
0: I mean, I think uh, the, the things that happen to the character of Katie in mean girls are definitely based on my own experiences of becoming fixated on people that you were jealous of. And you know, in in your version of the story, you're the hero, but you're probably not the hero in, in their version of the story.
1: Right, right. So time comes, you go off to the University of Virginia, and it seems like your interests and goals when you went off to go there versus when you graduated in 92 were actually quite different. So what happened there that really changed things?
0: Yeah, I went there thinking I would be an English major, I don't think I had any sense of what I would do with that. I don't even, I don't think I, I had, you know, and thankfully I was, you know, had parents who didn't pressure me to have a a long, a long plan. And then I got into some of those literature classes and I thought they were kind of boring slash hard. Yeah. And looking back, I don't know which, which was more, were they more boring or was it more that I just wasn't getting it? I don't know. I I, I'd like to say it was just maybe not it that it was a little boring because I'd certainly, I certainly loved, uh, reading plays mm-hmm. when I switched majors to, to the drama department.
1: And the reason for that switch though, I mean, had acting or, or performing ever even been on your radar or what it something I had happen?
0: Done, I had done community theater in high school. That was the big core of my friend group and still is people I met at that time. Um, but I was never the, by any means the star of it. I was just happy to be there. That's the best kind of community theater where you're, you're just happy to be there painting the floor of the stage or working mm-hmm. the box office and hang with your friends. And it's, and you're, you know, playing the, the general of the Salvation Army and guys and dolls and having a great <laughs> summer. Um, so there was, n- there was no evidence that one could find that I should do that on a professional level. <laughs>
1: Well, so at Virginia though, you I guess there's a place the Culbrith Theater that became like your home, right?
0: Yeah, I switched to being a drama major. I made some wonderful friends there and um it yes, it became my home. It became where all my classes were and where I just would hang out before class and after class and into the evening and after after rehearsal and is there's nothing better than than having a, a creative major that you love that much. It's the mm-hmm. greatest.
1: Now, I guess it would have also been there that that's the first time you write something that is performed by others, as opposed to you being in it you know, yourself, where that for, I guess, most drama students would have been the goal. How did that even come about? And, and did you like that, that when you're seeing your vision brought to life by others?
0: Yeah, that was the, I took some playwriting classes uh, with a teacher named Doug Grissom at UVA. And that was, that was the first writing for other people I had done. And it, and t- I wrote a little one act play and was not in it and saw it from the outside, saw it produced in, the, in a rudimentary way. And that was a real like eye opener of, oh, this is really satisfying to to get laughs for something that you wrote, to sit outside it and watch, 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 actors get laughs with it. was, uh, it was really, uh, it was a life-changing experience.
1: And it, it wasn't that that immediately displaced the desire to perform as well. Right. Cause I think right through your senior year, you were doing some pretty big parts, right? I mean, I, cabaret. Was,
0: <laughs> I, was, yeah, I did play Sally Bowles in cabaret and I was, I'm not a strong enough singer, Scott. I, You know, <laughs> if it had been I Am A Camera, I think it would have been a real home run. But uh, <laughs> but that was the beauty of a small department As you got, there were not that many people and you did get to take some shots. Um, also, just probably in Virginia, you can imagine that I was the closest anyone looked to Liza <laughs> <Mellon> in Virginia <laughs> in 1992.
1: So... Was it when you were writing stuff at Virginia, were you always gravitating towards comedy or was it a mixture of drama and comedy? Because it seems like there's obviously this decision that comes pretty soon after graduating. I'm going to move to Chicago, which is the place you go if you are certainly one of them if you're into comedy. But was it that clear already to you that that was a a strength of yours?
0: It was definitely... Clear to me that that's what I wanted to be a part of. I had, you know, grown up watching not only Saturday Night Live and SCTV, but all kinds of great half hour comedy from Lucille Ball to the Dick Van Dyke Show, uh, to and the Andy Griffith Show to MASH. You know, I grew up in a, a really fantastic childhood of excellent comedy, all the Norman Lear shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. I definitely felt like that was where it was at for me. I never I never once sat down and tried to write a proper drama. Also, I can't break a story to to this day to save my <laughs> life.
1: <laughs> well, so Chicago is known for a number of these, these places, particularly with improv, obviously. And it seems like you were one of the few people who had a hand in multiple uh, or a foot in multiple, right? Because I guess Farley Mark, Mike Myers a few people were involved with both Second City and improv olympic. How did that come to be the case for you as well that you were there for with both?
0: Well, um when you get there, when you start improvising in Chicago, it's such an addiction to you just go anywhere that says they have either uh, I guess the equivalent of an open mic night where you could just get up and randomly play. We would go all over the city. Friends that I met, my buddy, Kevin Riome, my friend, Jeff Clampett, eventually I met Amy, we, we would go anywhere. And then we realized, okay, there's two very different schools. You, Second city, you pay to take class there, and then you can try to get a paying job and improv Olympic, you could pay to take class and then kind of more quickly and for, with more opportunities, get a non-paying job, but an opportunity to be on a team and, and also the styles of improv were very different. One was short form and one was long form. And we should all read Sam Wasson's book Mm -hmm. to explain it.
1: (laughs) Yes. And so you're advancing, I guess, up to the main stage company with Second City and, and, you know, it's clearly doing well, it seems. But on the other hand, this stuff, I guess it takes quite a while for that to Uh, if ever, to pay a living wage. Right. So what what else was going on while you're doing improv in Chicago? And was the ultimate goal always SNL at that point or what was? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think the ultimate goal was SNL for sure. And I was working at the McGaw YMCA in Evanston, Illinois, and I worked my shift in the front desk at first. My shift was from 530 a.m. to 230. Then I would go home and I guess, take a nap or maybe I was so young. Uh, then I would go in the evening and take improv from like seven to 10. And, you know, if you go out for, in that case, in my, in that day it would have been, I would have been going out for a soda afterwards. <laughs> a drink. Um, you know, then you're home at midnight and back up at it. Uh, eventually then I did get promoted to a kind of a nine to five job there that I was terrible at. Um, I was the registrar for the preschool there and I messed a lot of stuff up
1: (laughs) (laughs) well meanwhile at the on the on the comedy side of things as you referenced a moment ago you're meeting people who to this day are a big part of your life not just Amy Poehler but I believe your husband uh to be
0: yeah we met at he was the uh um piano player at Improv Olympic, and then also went on to play in the Second City ETC and to become a director there as well yes
1: amazing and and so to to come back to Amy for a second, I guess the the um, woman who co-founded and owned IO uh, says that she introduced you and Amy in '93. Uh, I wonder, did you guys immediately hit it off? And also, what was inside Vladimir?
0: <laughs> inside Vladimir <laughs> was the first improv team that Amy and I were on together at Improv Olympic, and we were the only two women on it with a bunch of really lovely gentlemen, lovely evolved <laughs> guys. They really were good dudes. Because you don't know, you could get, you could get some real meatheads back then. I bet, I bet. Uh, and we did. We all we got along immediately. Um, I think there was just immediate mutual respect. We had been in different. We weren't hadn't been in class together. And I think Sharna Halpern, who was running the place at the time, had said to both of us, "Like, I'm going to put you with this girl. You're going to love. You're going to love each other." And uh, and and she was right.
1: And. Do you recall like what it was it just the fact that there was another female there to bond with or to commiserate with, or was there something actually about your senses of humor that clicked or something else?
0: I think there was a confidence. Then we were not by any means the only women at Improv Olympic. There were a lot of great female improvisers there, but we were the only women on our team. Um I just think there was, I mean, we were we started at the exact same time. We were confident or at least successfully (laughs) portraying ourselves as confident. And we were young feminists. And I think, I don't know, I think it just, uh, it just always
1: worked. So at one of those places, I'm not sure which, I believe you had a teacher by the name of Adam McKay. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, that would be, uh, well, he worked both places. Adam was at Improv Olympic and at Second City uh, in the main stage company there. I'm trying to think. I guess. I guess I had class with Adam. I guess he actually was my teacher. Yeah, but mostly he was on a. He was in a group, an improv group called the Family. That um, they were uh, what was called the House Team at the time, and it was like Neil Flynn and Ian Roberts and Ali Reza and an Adam, and they were. Uh, oh, wait I don't, Oh, gosh, I'm trying to think of pro. I don't want to leave anybody out. Miles Strath is the other Myles Strath and Matt Besser was. Um, but they, and they, so we would go see them all the time because they were just like next level, next level improv. And yeah.
1: So uh, you knew, I guess, Adam, well enough that when he goes off and lives the lives the Chicago dream of actually getting hired at SNL. Right. Yeah. He, he then thought of you.
0: I think I contacted him because so I had when he was after he left the main company at Second City, I went into the main company actually as an under I I understudied John Glazer Uh, and John, who has this impish, fantastic style to his comedy. It was great because because he wasn't like a bro body douche type of guy like a woman could understudy his parts because his comedy doesn't come from a very gendered place uh so i was um john glazer's understudy and then i eventually got into the company and then snl lorne and marcy klein had come to see the show that i was in uh after that to scout for snl and there was no interest in me as a performer and so i thought okay well i think i have to plan my next move i guess i'm not going to be on snl And also I remember my husband, my boyfriend at the time, Jeff was scheduled to direct the next show in the main stage and my deep Chicago improv integrity. I was like, well, that's just going to be a conflict of interest. I got (laughs) to leave the company before my boyfriend directs. It's just going to not be fair. And and so so I pursued a writing job through Adam and submitted a packet of of potential sketches and stuff. And and yeah, and Adam got me hired.
1: So was that before, you know, obviously getting hired, I'm sure, was was exciting. But before that, the, the notion that you would be, quote unquote, only a writer as opposed to performing and potentially writing, was that disappointing to you or you were just as happy to be there as a writer, as a performer?
0: Yeah, no, I was pretty happy to be there as a writer because even in The Second City, my role within the company was kind of as a writer, you know, because I was in it with people who are more pure performers, people like. Rachel Dratch and um, Scott Adsit. And so I sort of knew that my strength was pitching. And-
1: sure. And so when you got hired, was it one of these stories, which we've heard a few times on this podcast where it's like you weren't even sure you had been like, what, what was the deal?
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to I remember the only thing I had been told, the only advice I had gotten from Chicago friends was like, if you meet with Lauren Michaels, just do not finish his sentences. He really hates when people finish his sentences. And so I went into this office. I, you know, flew to New York for this meeting with Adam and then with Lorne and with Steve Higgins. And um, I went into Lorne's office and you're sitting there, you're looking at the name plate. It says Lorne Michaels. You cannot believe it. And Lorne looks at me and just says, so you're from... And this long, blonde—no, oh it's a trap. It's a trap. And then I finally said Philadelphia at the same time that he said Chicago. And I was like, Chicago. <laughs> I'm like, <"Yeah."> uh, but <laughs> thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, I survived.
1: Yeah. And pretty quickly had to get there. Right. I mean, there's not a lot of like getting your life in order, is there?
0: No, I think I had to be there within a week. <sighs> I remember all my lady friends, Rachel Dratch. Amy, all these people took us out, took me out to like a farewell lunch at one of our favorite Chicago places, and I at a place called the Wishbone, and I ate a big Chicago meal because that's what you did in Chicago was the best, and then I went in uh, in the bathroom and and threw up out of nerves, which oh, is n- like not something that ever ever happened to me. <laughs> I was like, oh. I think I'm out of anxiety about moving.
1: <laughs> well, and, and also you were the only one of your crew that was going over at that time
0: at that moment, I think so.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So when you get there and, you know, those first few years, uh, as a, as a writer, um, does any, what stands out the most to you as you today, you know, if you look back at that time, was there, was there one where you were like, all right, I've earned my, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get fired, you know, tomorrow or, or something like that.
0: Gosh, it does feel like so long ago now. And also the world has changed so much. I talk a lot with my friends who I worked there at the time and we sort of think about things that we saw or accepted as normal that were (laughs) were not great. But um, I think hmm, one of the first things, I think maybe one of the first times, I can't remember how far in anything was, you know, Uh, but I, um, I think when I got the, I, I wrote a sketch uh called census and this may be in a couple years in uh for Christopher Walken for Tim Meadows was a census taker knocking on Christopher Walken's door. And it was like the best anything had ever gone for me in the table read. It was great. Christopher Walken was so funny. Tim was a perfect straight man. And I was like, this is it. I'm the greatest. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then it did make it, it did air, but this sketch The sketch right after it in read-through was Cowbell. Oh, man. (laughs) Man, oh, man.
1: Got a little lost. Yeah. Well, and I I believe the first period sketch, correct me if I'm wrong, that you wrote was this commercial parody for a Lifetime documentary called I Took a Gay Guy to Prom.
0: (laughs) That was like that was like week two or three. I did get that on. Yeah.
1: Okay, so you start there in 97 at a certain point, I guess two years in, Adam leaves as head writer. How do yeah. you then wind up in that job, the first female head writer ever up to that point, 25 years into the show being on the air? And and I guess for anyone, including me, who might need a little clarification, what the responsibilities of the head mm-hmm. writer versus the writer that you were up to that point well how did that differ? Sure.
0: a regular staff writer you can write whatever you want i mean that's one of the amazing slash insane things about that show no one will ever tell you on tuesday night you cannot write that you can write whatever you want and put it in that pile um, and as head writer you can still do that but you also might feel more responsibility to Think about what a cold open could be or to help with the monologue to or to keep an eye on cast that are having trouble getting on Um, the things I always try to remind people about the head writer thing. Or one, I was the first woman at that time, though, I think there had only been three or four head writers total. So it wasn't like I was the first woman writer. There were women there from the beginning. And I did always uh, I always had at least one other uh, person, co-head writer. Um, Dennis McNicholas did it for a long time. And uh, Andrew Steele did it for a little while. Tim Hurley, he was the other head writer when I first started doing it. But it's 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 it doesn't mean you're the funniest writer. It just means you can get things done and you can kind of try to help shepherd other people.
1: Yeah. So again, 97, you start. 99, you're now a head writer. And then what happened after that season before the... I guess it would be before the 2000 season where you and Rachel Dratch, who again had this, had this history together already, you go off and do something together that suddenly somehow a switch flips in, I guess, Lauren's mind that you actually are a performer, right?
0: Yeah, we did over the summer, uh, Rachel and I, I went, would go back to Chicago in the summers back then. And, um, which feels like 1000 years ago. (laughs) And we decided to do a two woman sketch show over the summer. And then we brought it to the UCB in New York. Um, And it was just called Dratch and Faye. And it was like a little one hour sketch show. It was funny. It was pretty funny. (laughs) And, uh, and Lauren and and I think Marcy Klein, they they came to see it because, you know, they, they knew me by then. And they had certainly met Rachel over the years. And I don't think Rachel was at the show yet. Don't think. I think she came to the show after. But after seeing that, and also, you know, in a very honest late nineties disclosure way, like I moved to New York and I dropped twenty Chicago pounds. Mm. And then all of a sudden New York was like, Oh, maybe. <laughs> and I just did that not for any reason other than it was that's what people did in the nineties. And yes. you know, I had money for the first time. I wanted to buy cute clothes, whatever.
1: Right. Fair um, enough. <laughs>
0: and so I think they saw me differently and and uh there was a vacancy for a weekend update and so so um which often happened there that uh like they just ask people around the office do you want to test for this you know
1: yeah Um, so like that's how
0: that's how conan o'brien got a tv show he was just like (laughs) around
1: right right well all right so just again to keep the chronology in order it's uh 2000 to 2004, when Jimmy Fallon leaves, it's the, the two of you guys. Then, and by the way, the first female co-anchor, right, aside from Jane Cardin, up to that point, was it also in the doing of Weekend Update that you and Robert Carlock began yeah, dealing with that each other? Is, yeah, Robert
0: was a successful uh, staff writer on the show for a while at that time. And then when Jimmy and I were assigned to host Weekend Update, Robert got assigned to run weekend update, which meant he sort of barely got to write sketches anymore, but he was in charge of, of that segment, um, which is a lot of work. And, you know, Robert was very good at it and well suited for it because he was smart and understood the news as well as had a lot of integrity about joke structure and, (laughs) you know, quality of joke.
1: And so you guys just on a, I guess, personal level, just like hit it off. And I mean, the fact uh, just and people don't know yet, this is the person who all the you've worked with so closely on all the yeah. more recent shows. I guess it, it started with that bond there, right?
0: It started with Weekend Update. Yes. Yeah. And then Robert left. At some point he left to um, go work at Friends and, and worked the last couple of seasons of Friends and then went on to work at Joey, which yes. um, I think it's fair to say was harrowing compared to friends. <laughs> um, right. In terms of like, Oh, I mean, there was no, there was no better job in TV than friends. It's like the, right. biggest, and then, and so about a year into Joey, I guess there only was a year I called him and said, oh, I'm writing this pilot. And, you know, I called Robert and I called Mike sure. And I was like, would you guys be willing to come back for the week? We shoot the pilot and just kind of help me do punch up. And, and be around on set for things I can't. Want. And they were like, sure, you know, Robert. I think his son James was a baby. Uh, I don't think sure wasn't married yet. And um, they came up for a week and then uh, and helped. And then Robert um, has been here since. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> um,
0: I think Mike was maybe at the office already, and so he had to go back. And but, um,
1: well, so yeah. that that was beginning of 30 Rock in 2006 but before that even happens where are you like was it a particular personal ambition to also write a film script because it seems like during your off seasons with SNL you would be I don't know within your rights to take a break and yet it seems like that was not the the plan
0: that's a good question I knew like I guess I had just had some ambition back then <laughs> that, and I knew that Lauren had this relationship at Paramount cause they had made Wayne's world there and superstar when I was at SNL. And, uh, and I saw this article in the New York times, a book review about the book, Queen bees and wannabes. And I was like, well, I think this could be a movie. And so I took it to Lauren and he immediately had Paramount by the rights. And, and that I wrote that over a summer. I mean, you can write There, Looking back at SNL compared to 30 Rock, you have so much time at SNL. <laughs> like you, Also, everyone's younger and most most people don't have kids yet. And you just, you have every third week is off. Like it's right. <laughs> compared to 22 episodes of half hour TV. It's
1: a cakewalk. Yeah, breeze. Yeah. So meanwhile, again, Jimmy leaves in 04. And so from October 04 until you leave in 06, it's you and Amy now doing weekend update. And I guess, was that your, did you, as the, as the remaining anchor sort of get to pick who your partner would be? And and then how was it different when she did show up with you?
0: Yes. And no, I think it, I, I did tests with people, I think, and I even tested on my own. I think I felt like I was supposed to want to do it myself. Like I, I felt like, Oh, you should be ambitious. You should think like a man and be like, now the whole thing's mine. And I did, I think I did a screen test by myself. And I, even though I had been doing it for four years, I didn't, I didn't like doing it by myself. And, um, I proposed weekend update marriage to Amy. (laughs) (laughs) I think maybe a week, I think the week of the first show, I think it was Oh
1: wow, late,
0: maybe two weeks before it was quite late.
1: And what was the, how would you compare the, I don't know. N- n- chemistry was obviously there with both, but with both Jimmy and her. But like, how was it different doing it with Amy versus doing it with Jimmy?
0: I don't remember doing it with Jimmy. <laughs> I, <don't> remember, <laughs> I barely remember any of it. I think, I, I think when I was doing it with Jimmy, I was just trying to figure out even remotely how to be on TV. Um, I definitely feel like I was there to kind of ground him. Um, I think Lauren has some. Thing that he says that like i was there to give him intelligence and he was there to give me like sex appeal or something which uh, i don't i don't think either of us bless our hearts is is laying down a lot of sex appeal but um <laughs> we're not like it's not like it's salma hayek and, <laughs> and like
1: <laughs> well
0: John Connery
1: it, I mean people obviously obviously enjoy it in in both forms but I guess what was it you know as you've said there you were reaching out to Mike Sher and Robert about this show in around that time but whose idea was that were you just were you looking to kind of de uh de-board, whatever the word might be at that point. Did you know that you wanted to leave SNL or was that somebody else inside?
0: Yeah, I think I was trying to build a lifeboat only because you you can't stay forever unless you're Keenan and you're and you <laughs> have a pact with the devil to look 28 for really? the rest of your life.
1: Right. Um right.
0: <laughs> Keenan is the only one who looks the same. <laughs> um he is the best. Uh so I think, yeah, I was like, oh, I should start figuring out what I'm gonna do and Lauren had encouraged me to take an overall deal at NBC, and I think, I think in his hope it would be I would take the overall deal and then just n- deliver nothing, and just keep the keep the money and stay at SNL. <laughs> but um, I'm too dutiful, and so I kept trying to write versions of a pilot. There was an early version of Thirty Rock that was kind of. Closer to great news, actually, it was set in the cable news world. It still was a Liz Jack relationship, but there was no Tracy. Kevin Riley passed on it. I also, having gone to many half-hour pitches since then, did not know how to pitch. I oh, just really? was like okay. Yeah, I would kind of be like, I don't know, like just ridiculous SNL entitlement in the pit.
1: <laughs> well, and was Lauren gonna always? have some involvement or how did that mm-hmm. how, and that first yeah. show for
0: sure? Yeah. yeah. And so then I ended up rewriting it, uh, based on Kevin Riley's notes and mm-hmm. brought it back, um, as 30 rock and, and, uh, Alex signed on to do the pilot. Mm-hmm. And these are, I learned uh, every, every, anything that I know about producing television, a half hour television, I learned on 30 rock. And the first thing I learned about was that Alec had only signed on to do the pilot. And then NBC was, it was time for them to pick it up before the upfronts and Alec had Jeff Zucker over a barrel because (laughs) Jeff had to pick it up or was, you know, pressured by us to pick it up and he didn't actually own Alec. Um, (laughs) And that was kind of amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good way to negotiate. Um, And, and so the, the other thing was that, I mean, other certainly noteworthy thing was now for the first time you who have said you were never especially comfortable being the person at the, you know, on camera, maybe I, I I don't know if I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it was an adjustment. Was it not to now be the person who a whole show would be revolving around?
0: Yeah, it was a lear- It just was a learning curve, you know? And again, mm-hmm. I learned so much from Alec literally just, lean to your right and the other person's c- get out of their light, you know, um, look at, look at the, their eye closest to the camp, like just technical stuff mm-hmm. and how to pace yourself as a person, how to, you know, I, I learned so much from him and from, from Jane too. And it, but it's a learning curve that you see so many people go through, you know, we recently, we went back, I had not looked at this in forever and I did not look at the whole thing, but, um, somebody was reminding me to go back and look at the first review of 30 rock that in the Washington post and Tom Shales just gave a review that was so personally scathing and, and Ooh. hateful toward me personally of like, she's terrible. She should not be in this. Oh um, my god! And it's like, I forgot. To, I gotta get, I gotta get a copy of it and frame it now. <laughs> um, it was something, it was something like, um, here's what we know. Tina Fey is no Orson Welles. And everyone seems to know it's obvious to everyone, but Tina Fey, which is deeply misogynistic because to be like, how dare you be in a show that's about you starring you. And I'd be like, I don't know. Did you ask Jerry Seinfeld? That? <laughs> Tom?
1: He's well, a he,
0: actor too. <laughs> <it, I>, <laughs> <laughs> well, and I
1: remember like Tom, has been really mean to a few of you guys like Conan I think originally he wrote off very early on also and but I mean the, the not in a the, the misogyny is a different thing to uh yeah, maybe have to it's deal just with
0: com- comedy hatred I don't know
1: it's so weird but meanwhile it must have helped to uh, alleviate any concern over that when I guess it's for season 2 maybe you won an acting Emmy right that was uh that's kind of a uh uh F you to anyone who wanted to question that. But I guess overall, though, the the TV Academy was always on board with your shows like you guys and Mad Men, I think every year, but it was more an issue of the viewership. And I wonder what you attribute that to. Was it just the fact that single camera comedy was still something people were getting having to kind of get used to having been for so many years, cued about when to laugh? Or was it the fact that you guys were so fast, that people just were not used to that at that point or or something else.
0: I mean, I do think I think the TV Academy and the SAG Awards kept us alive. They kept we kept winning things and Alec kept winning and winning and winning. And and they just couldn't cancel us. You know, I think maybe we were a show that was kind of built for streaming before there was streaming. But that's that said it was clean. You know, it was um, I, I think. It's also just that show is not for everyone and be, that and that doesn't make it a better or a worse show. You know, I think it's like that show is what it's um it's crab legs. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, um-
1: <laughs> well, and, and now had your personal reference point when you, ha- you know, you got the notes from riley and you're having to figure out how you want what what this is going to be was was the reference point like a larry sanders type thing just the show within or were, were you how did you approach it in your own mind from the outset
0: larry sanders was definitely the gold standard of any at that time of any kind of showbiz show and of course you know there's no way of measuring how much the dick van dyke show was inside my cells from mm-hmm. being a kid um and the Mary Tyler Moore show in terms mm-hmm. of a workplace comedy that is about TV basically. Yeah. Um, and so all those things were in its DNA. I think someone wrote a thing once where they compared it to the Muppet show structurally. And I was like, Oh, it is the Muppet show. <laughs> I'm Kermit." Um, I'm Kermit. Um,
1: you know, people outside of the business should know you start, as you reference, you start with a pilot, then you hope to stay alive for one season and you guys were constantly. So I guess in a way, Were you ever allowing yourself to think like very far down the road about where this was all going when you there was always sort of this thing hovering over that it's there's no guarantee of tomorrow?
0: It was definitely especially season one. And then once we won the Emmy, then we're like, oh, maybe we'll get more. But season one, it was really the attitude of like, if we if we just make these the way we want them, then we'll we'll have tapes of it. It was like, <laughs> and then we'll have the tapes and someday like we can show our friends the tapes. It was, it was definitely just get it, get it made so we can prove someday that we got it made. And then by season two and three, then we were like, oh, maybe we can plan a little bit longer.
1: Yeah. You know? yeah. So it ended up going from 06 to 13. And in that period, of course, just, I've got to at least briefly bring up the fact that I guess this was all in 2008, starting in 2008, there is a selection of Sarah Palin by the late John McCain to be the vice presidential candidate. And, you know, I guess today in the, whatever it is, decade plus since then, we're used to people making cameos, um, you know, regularly on SNL, particularly as politicians. Uh, that wasn't really the case when you started showing up as, Sarah Palin, if I, if I remember correctly, I mean, there'd been some, but I guess I just wonder, I think the first one was you as Palin and Amy as Hillary. Was that the yeah, first that time? Was
0: the first, that was the first time. Yeah. And it was all in this six week span up to yeah. the 2008 election. And I think, I don't think people saw it really as a cameo from me because I don't think people realized that I didn't work there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Um, or, or also, that I pretty much never did sketches when I did work.
1: Right. <laughs> um,
0: it was a weird time because I, I, you know, it didn't have to be me. Like, obviously Amy could have done it. I mean, it would have bumped because she already did Hillary. So it might've limited that, but like Kristen Wiig could have done it. Anyone could have done it, but there was just this weird resemblance that people felt like they saw. And, and Lauren said, it was like that, you know, the outside world cast it. He hadn't, he did not have a choice.
1: Um, and so, though, the actual, you know, call, though, was Lauren saying, please do us a favor and come come by.
0: I'm sure I feel like I was pretty cocky in 2008 because <laughs> we had won a bunch of prizes. And I think I was probably, you know, hearing that, like, oh, people are saying it should be her. And I was probably walking around 30 Rock being like, I don't know if I want to. I'm not an impressionist. And meanwhile, like, nobody had called me. <laughs> He's like, nobody called you. Um <laughs> And then I think Lauren, it was like the week of the first show and Lauren called on Thursday or something and said, well, just come by. We'll take a look (laughs) at it. Come by. Because he knew that if I didn't end up wanting to do it or if I stunk at it in rehearsal, but he, he had wig, he had, you know, I think Rachel was maybe still there. Like he had plenty of people who could do it. And so I think, I think I didn't go over there to do that first one until the day of, is that possible? Did I not go the Friday night even because we were shooting? I think the Saturday of that first Sarah Palin, I know that I shot an extra day of 30 rock that I shot all day with Oprah, oh um, God. who we had strong arms,
1: right.
0: uh, into being in an episode. And then I was on the breaks trying to learn the impression to make up an impression on my breaks. And, I've said this before, but I remember Oprah saying to me, like, I think you might be doing too much. (laughs) (laughs) Oprah tells you this.
1: Well, so what for you was the was the first indication that this was actually really working? Because obviously there was a huge audience response. But was there a was it at dress or even before that where somebody said, we've really got something special here?
0: Well, I think it was. perfect storm. I think, um, the audience really rooted for it because they felt that they had cast it. Um, and I had never been a part, I, as a performer, I had never been chosen ever before. It was always me just being like, how about me? No, but how about, can I do it? And people being like, no. (laughs) And, and so it was the first time I ever performed anything where the, like, the door was open for me and that just gets you so far when there's a little bit of goodwill there. Oh my God, it's, it's just a little easier. Um, and also Seth Myers and Amy, uh, and, and I think, you know, Amy and I definitely Seth, I think probably did the bulk of the writing, but uh, those sketches, but we like definitely had opinions and made changes and pitched jokes. And, um, you know, Seth was at the top of his game and it just was, um, It was our a prayer for Owen Meany moment (laughs) our whole lives have been building to this.
1: Well, just the last thing about that topic is um, the October 18th, 2008 episode where she actually showed up there, got the biggest ratings for SNL in 14 years. And it's interesting because somehow in I don't know, in the back of your head, you were able to look at it outside of yourself and know that there were certain things you did and didn't want to happen with her there can you just take like what were your what were your concerns
0: well you know i had worked there for a long time before right so i knew kind of how things work and when it's like well she wants to come on because generally usually people embrace even if they don't really like it or whatever maybe they were fine with it they like to appear like they embrace an impression of themselves um and i think i did say like please i don't want to um because i i thought we were you know we were starting at that time to see the beginning of what i think was the very 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 beginning of divisive politics i mean now looking back on it now it's like a charity fun run but <laughs> at the time it felt it felt divisive and i wasn't i wasn't on board
1: well so what you what you weren't on board with though was not actually Sharing the screen with her. I said, right? I
0: said, "Can we do it that I'm just not in a two shot with her?" Well, I said, because because if if I'm in a two shot with her, it's what they're going to show at the Emmys when I die. <laughs> oh, God. And I don't want that to be what they show at the Emmys when I die.
1: Right. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's thinking ahead. That's long long-term, uh, long term planning. Way. So, <laughs> but um, okay, so that there was a there was a moment here where this is October 2008, New York Times article. Bill Carter, quote, it's easy to find Tina Fey on TV, but not her show. That was the headline. Uh, And the article itself says, quote, with her three Emmy Awards, her ubiquitous American Express commercials, and especially her must-see Sarah Palin impersonations, Tina Fey is not just the hottest star on NBC. She's about the hottest star in show business at the moment. So where is 30 Rock, close quote. So meanwhile, I guess there was still there was always this struggle to with time slots and just figuring out how to keep it alive but it did for seven seasons 22 episodes you guys made it happen we uh have while all, you have the tapes right but tapes. also you know while being a, a a wife and mom while making movies which we'll mention later while hosting other things um and uh so i guess i just did it end because you understandably enough were just like this is a very heavy plate or what was the reason it ended when it did?
0: It ended. um, It was feeling like it was time to end. I think by that time I had learned, and I think I did have everybody in their proper deals through maybe even through a season eight. And so I think Alec was like, what? (laughs) But now I finally (laughs) signed up, (laughs) but um, I had had my second daughter during season six and I was tired. And Mm -hmm. uh, I, and I remember Bob Greenblatt had just taken over, and I thought, well, this is also when new people take over, they don't want the old people's stuff. And so I I thought, let me try to control the landing of this. And so I went to Bob and said, we would like to do 13 and then be done. And it was a very quick yes, because I think he probably maybe he would have canceled it anyway, but um, because it was expensive, you know, it was shot on film in New York. And the more seasons you go with people, everyone's. These go up. And,
1: yep, yep.
0: um, and so we did those 13 and, uh, I'm very proud of the ramp out of the show. We, we, uh, I feel like we did a good job. I feel like, you know, we studied so many series finales to get ready for it. And, uh, I do, I do think I do feel good about how we ended it.
1: Well, so the, I don't know how much of a break you got after that, because let's just note that Kimmy Schmidt goes on in 2015, I believe originally had been planned for NBC, right, but ends up at Netflix and, you know, has very passionate following, Um, really fun show. And I guess Ellie, you knew from maybe The Office or Bridesmaids? You know, I had
0: met Ellie once or twice and um, Robert and I, we took a little break uh, after 30 Rock ended. I think I made a movie. Mm -hmm. I I think I made maybe the movie admission. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we were sitting in our little tiny office, our new office and thinking about what we're going to do next. And Richard whites, our agent said, would you ever develop for Ellie Kemper? And that was the first person that we were like, Oh yes, Mm -hmm. I like that idea. She's so beautiful, intelligent Mm -hmm. and funny. And she's also just a, a lovely person. Um, and so we started developing with her in mind, and that's where the Kimmy Schmidt idea came from. And it was an it was originally an order of thirteen for NBC, and the original pilot was very dark. <laughs> Wouldn't have seemed dark at all for streaming, but it was much right. too dark for NBC.
1: More darker than a darker than a girl being kept in an underground bunker by a cult leader.
0: It was, that was still what happened to her, but just the the way we portrayed the reverend and the moods, the, you know, parts of it, I still really like, and I think could have survived on Netflix, but we changed things in the pilot, but and then we were shooting, we were shooting episode 12 or 13 when we started to get the sense that NBC didn't, was going to burn it. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it was like, we'll put it on after America's got talent in the summer. Can you imagine? (laughs) you Imagine Titus after America's <laughs> Got Talent. Uh,
1: ay, yeah, yeah. ay, Well, I I think it it seems to have worked out in a nice way. And I want to give a shout out to your husband because I think that's still the best theme song of a show that I, I can still never get it out of my head. And he also did Thirty Rock's theme, right? And and then of he course did, all the, stuff the theme but,
0: the theme for yeah. Thirty Rock, the theme for Kimmy Schmidt. The theme for Kimmy Schmidt was not even nominated. That's for ridiculous. theme song Emmy, which
1: I don't know, guys. Yeah, I no, can't. it's crazy. I remember but,
0: um, it was, yeah, it's the greatest theme song of the last twenty years for yeah. sure. Yeah, um, and he's uh, you know at it again now with uh, Girls Five Eva. I just saw an LA Times article today that says taking the thirty-one songs of season one of Girls Five Eva and ranking them, and I was like, by the way, did you realize that there were thirty-one
1: That's <laughs> songs
0: bro. or song pieces in eight episodes of?
1: Uh, well, I mean, you you're you bring up the that transition perfectly because I want to now say, you know, March 2020, we all go into pandemic lockdown mm-hmm. essentially. But for most of us, that involved, you know, sitting in our pajamas and ordering food. And yet in the time since the pandemic, I believe that this is a complete list. You have done the following. You did Soul and or finished up Soul. And the prequel now, you filmed the 30 Rock Reunion special, which was on Zoom in July. You began developing the film adaptation of Mean Girls, uh, the musical. So we'll have Mm -hmm. that at some point. You worked on, I guess, parts of season one and now parts of season two for NBC's uh, show Mr. Mayor with Ted Nassin and Holly Hunter. And uh, and now, of course, Girls5eva, which again is well, also, I don't want to leave out. I guess there's an upcoming Netflix animated series uh, yes. called oh, Mulligan. Mulligan. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, I don't know where you found the time to, to do all of this. But Girls5eva is the thing that everybody's talking about this week because it started last week, uh, dropped on Peacock. And so I want to, I guess, start by saying what what at this point when you I don't think you have to prove anything to anybody. Why are you why do you work? Why do you push this hard still? And particularly, though, with Girls 5eva, how did that come out of this period?
0: Well, Meredith Cardino was a writer for the entire duration of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And she's a fantastically funny writer. And she brought Robert and me and Jeff this idea for Girls 5eva as Kimmy Schmidt was winding down. And I said, absolutely, because um it felt really fertile from the beginning. And then, you know, Meredith, this was the first time that, you know, I didn't have to be in the writer's room, but I could just read outlines and give thoughts and read scripts and give pitches if I had them or just, you know, uh, and Oh my gosh, what a treat to have these great scripts come back that I didn't have to stay up till two in the morning personally (laughs) for. Um, but I was very hands on with it in that I felt, um, was really important to me to get her the best cast that we could and it was kind of harrowing to do so in the pandemic but i think in some ways the pandemic helped us because we just got lucky that you know busy phillips had moved to new york paula pell was moving back east um and we also shot the whole eight episodes during the pandemic and so i was you know going out to queens in full um you know, mask, face shield, yeah, class, yeah, yeah. trying to help Meredith out because she was there every day. It, we, we I think everyone f- was just excited to be working. Um and NBC spent a fortune testing everybody and keeping everybody safe. Um, which I thought was particularly generous because they could have just said like okay we're gonna test all the law and orders and everyone else is fired <laughs> 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 because they don't know they don't know if this is gonna work. And it's cost the same to test <laughs> the people on the show that might not work.
1: Well, was it your idea also? I believe Sarah Bareilles. To yeah, and I, I, a, yeah.
0: I will say yes. I, I, that I feel like that main cast was, um, uh, uh I will, I will take some, some credit for, yeah. for helping Mary get those choices and then getting on the phone with those people. So we started with Sarah who I had seen in a waitress and I thought she was just radiant in a mm-hmm. waitress and I knew she was funny as a person. And, um, I think she was sort of like shocked that we called her asking about a half hour comedy, but was into it. And I think also that, again, the pandemic made people be like, why not? Right. One, this may never happen. And two, what does it matter if it if it happens and it's a mess? Who cares?
1: Right.
0: And so then we started with, yes, we started with Sarah. And then I said, you know, I was in a movie once with Renee Goldsberry, and I know that she's really funny and people don't know that she's that funny. So we like took a shot there. And then Busy and Paula, I've known, I mean, I've known Paula for 30 years.
1: Well, just if anyone doesn't know the, the context, I mean, so obviously Renee and Sarah, we all know, can sing amazingly. Um, but there's the premise here, which, first of all, let's also say 100% on Rotten Tomatoes doesn't happen every day with dozens Woo-hoo! of reviews in. But um, just this 90s girl group that had their one hit disappeared into regular life mm-hmm. obscurity and now have a, a chance at a new life i get the sense that also part of it and i think meredith's talked about this and i wonder if you you know also relate or or felt similarly that how often do we see shows about women in their 40s or older mm-hmm. who are mm-hmm. you know it just this, this whole structure of just the i don't i can't think of too many comps for these characters
0: but these particular characters yeah well it is I don't know when we sort of fell out of if, if the beginning of TV comedy is Lucy and Ethel, right? Like when did we forget that? I mean, you know, they've been, these guys aren't the, they're not the golden girls, but they're close. They're like as close (laughs) as we're allowed to get (laughs) in the 21st century. Um, But the fact that they're all super funny and they all get to be funny is what's
1: important to me. It's Hilarious. And you've, and the the missing fifth is from Mean Girls the musical. Yeah, Ashley yeah. Park
0: plays Ashley, uh, who was the original group member who they see in flashbacks sometimes, and hopefully we'll find a way to keep justifying seeing her in season two if we get a season two. Oh, because, better, um, yeah, better, yeah, better, right, right, Scott.
1: Well, uh, and also they they make people without giving anything away. They may recognize the uh, Dolly Parton cameo on the show have, as
0: well. <laughs> if you don't, that's fine too. <laughs>
1: Well, so just um, if we can close with last minute with just a couple Mm -hmm. of big picture things. Um, During the run of Kimmy Schmidt, I think, was when you produced and starred in Whiskey Tango Foxtrot with, uh, I guess, which Robert also was very involved with. And then Mm -hmm. um, with Amy, I think it's now seven movies. Martin Norloff, Mean Girls, Man of the Year, Baby Mama, Anchorman 2, Sisters, and Wine Country. Um, So I guess is. To you these days, the line between film and TV is as blurred as ever. But is film acting something that you want to do more of going forward? No, I
0: don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's really great. I mean, I've talked with my peer friends about it. It's amazing how you can go from like, oh man, if I could only be in a movie to like, when is it? (laughs) Uh. I mean, I do feel like maybe there's a, maybe there's, I, I look forward to pl- being like an old lady in a movie. Mm-hmm. Like when my kids are grown. <laughs> I don't know. It would. I do think that uh, TV is my home.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You and Amy co-hosted the Golden Globes in 2013, 14, 15, and 21. Mm-hmm. Is that fun? And, and what do you make of the fact that you may have hosted the last Golden Globe Awards? <laughs>
0: we said once, one time we said... Like 2015, I think we said, welcome to the final Golden Globes. Because...
1: <laughs> you were just ahead of, ahead of your time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think we'll be sad to if we don't get to hang out next year, but we'll just find another way to hang
1: yeah, out. Right. <laughs> um, is there, have you been approached about hosting the Oscars? Is that just a different vibe than the Globes?
0: It's such a different vibe. It's such yeah. a high stress. It, the stakes are too high, you know, yeah. and no, no one's there to laugh.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. So you would if somebody, you know, if they ever came around to the idea of having a host again and they asked you with or without Amy, it's a it's a no.
0: I I would like to stick to my guns and say it's a it's a very grateful. No, thank you.
1: Okay. And then I guess just finally, you know, we've talked about in in an hour here how uh, just amazing amount of stuff you've accomplished already. Is there anything in your mind that is still specifically on the to do list or is it just kind of keep the, keep the train rolling at this level.
0: Keep the train rolling. I'd like to write a play sometime, just like a a poor man's Neil Simon, just try to write a comedy play. And I have some specific projects, film or TV that I I do want to get to, but I feel like if I name those, then it'll be like, where are they?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Every future interview will be that. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Congrats so. on girls. Five of it. it's great.
0: Thank you so much. Everybody get Peacock.
1: Thanks very much for tuning into Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at THR.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.